Let's dive into our Easter message. I will read John 3.16 and verse 17 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, as you noticed from that reading, um, the scripture I chose this morning for Easter is one of the most, if not the most, famous in all of the Bible. And the reason I chose these verses this morning was that as I was thinking and praying through what the Lord wanted me to say to you this week, uh, these verses were the most prominent in my mind. Now, I realize for many of you, the truths contained within these verses are familiar to you. However, my prayer and hopes for you this morning is that through our time together and through the Spirit's power, that you will discover something afresh and new in this passage that you haven't seen before or thought about before that will draw you closer to the Lord and make you appreciate Him more this Sunday. So why don't we uh, jump into these uh, uh, two verses and after this we'll... I also have a special surprise after uh, we have a testimony to be given in response to this message. But the first thing I want you to notice in verse 16 is that God is defined as one who loves the world. He's one who's defined as one who loves the world. Now the world in Greek, the word cosmos, can have various meanings. Um, Often it can be a reference to the material universe. Like, you know, like the world being the earth, the planet earth. Or it can be in reference to humankind or the human race. Clearly from the context, God's love of the world has to do with humanity, the human race. Because he says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the world in this this context has to do with humanity, the the people that have the ability to believe. Now what's important about this is that Notice the universality of this love. It's a universal love. He doesn't distinguish between one race or another, or one gender or another, in terms of his op- this opportunity to be loved by him. It's a universal offer, and everyone is thought of, everyone's included, from the first person to the last person that's going to live. And it's really important to understand this in context. Uh, we often forget that this, these verses are contained within a conversation that Jesus is having with a Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, he's a leading uh, religious teacher in, in Jerusalem, and uh, he's Jewish. He believes that he is, like, that the Jewish people are the only, like, God's chosen people, that uh, Gentiles and Samaritans and people like that would be excluded from God's plan of salvation. Here, he's having this conversation with Nicodemus and saying, God loves the world, not just the Jews. Again, always important to think about the context in which these verses apply. And we can see the universal offer just in that context alone. But there's a dilemma. There's a dilemma here in verse 16 as well. See, while just um, God loves the world, John makes that clear. But the world, according to John, is in looming danger. They're in looming danger. You see, he talks about the world here in verse 16 as people who are in a perishing state. He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish. So the idea that if there isn't a belief in him, there will be a perishing. 
so the, the world's in a perishing state, and the world needs saving. In verse 17, he says, God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that he might save them, or save, yeah, save the world. So again, this is important. The world needs saving. The world needs perishing. Again, reference to humankind. Now, this perishing in this, in the, in this salvation, of course, is defined is in terms of having eternal life. To perish is not to have eternal life. To not be saved is not to have eternal life, not to be in relationship with God, again, in this context. Now, why would this be? Why would the world, from God's perspective, even though he loves the world dearly, be in a separated state from him, be in a perishing or, or state or need of saving? Well, verse 19 actually refers to it. Um, it says, This is the judgment that the light, which is Jesus, has come into the world, and the men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So the problem is, is that Jesus has come, but as the world rejects Christ, they don't love him, and it's reflected in the way we live, in our, in our deeds. Now we could summarize this in one word. We can summarize it in one word, and that word would be sin. The world has sinned against the holy God, and we've all rebelled and all taken up arms against him. Now, when we understand God's law through the lens of love, through the lens of love, we can see why. You see, 2,000 years ago, a lawyer and Jesus got into a conversation, and it, it happened in Matthew 22, verse 37. And uh, this lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? In the whole law of Moses. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus makes it clear. He goes, you want to, you have to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we understand the law in relation to love, we can see how this is a game changer in how we view sin. It's a game changer. Here's an example. None of us, not, not including me, <laughs> especially me, none of us can look in the mirror with a clear conscience and admit that we've, not fa fa that we've not failed in some way to meet God's standard in relation to love. Let's just take one small, uh, one small area where we all have, will have failed to meet God's standard in loving your neighbor. Let's take the area of gossip. Just gossip. Just that one thing. Forget everything else, just gossip. Every single one of us has been in a situation where we've said something about someone that if they were in that room listening to us, they would not have appreciated the words. They would have demanded justice for the words that we've spoken and, and potentially would have even ended the relationship with us because of the things we said about that person. Every single one of us would be guilty of that. And, um, and this, is, this is the way we have to view sin. When we view it that way, we understand that that was an unloving act against a fellow person that God created in their image. And so God takes these kind of things seriously because he's holy and perfect um, and he's perfect in being. When he sees us doing things like gossip and, and failing to love our neighbor, he takes it seriously. And to be just, he needs to inflict a penalty for that. Well, the, according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the penalty for sin is death. So the reason why we physically die, the reason why we spiritually are separated from God, is because of sin. And, the, and that penalty is waged in death. Now death has already been defined for us in verse 16, not having eternal life. It's, it's to perish. Now, in order for God to be just, 
In order for him to be a just God, he must inflict the penalty on us as being guilty. And you understand this, humanly speaking. When that person, if you are the recipient of gossip and you find out about that and what that person said about you, your instinct is to want justice. You would demand justice if you were the one who was the victim of gossip. And unless you got it, um, it, it would be a deal breaker for you in terms of relationship. Now, as Christians, we're called to a higher standard, we're called to forgive, but, but when we're in, as non-Christian people, it's easy to, well, in fact, forgiveness in these situations is virtually impossible. We demand justice. We, I mean, even as Christians, at times, we demand it, and God has to make us rethink the way we handle these things. So God's the same as us in terms of the way he views these things. He, in order for him to be just, the penalty has to be inflicted. Well, this creates really two problems, two issues arise out of this then. The first one is that if God inflicts the penalty, which is death, and follows through with justice, then we as his creation can never have a relationship with him. If, he, if the penalty is, is, to, is death then the, and the, it ends there, then there is no opportunity for us to be in relationship with him and we can't earn back our way into favor with God. The second one, though, if he's only just, if that's all he is, we simply only learn to fear God. If God is just, yeah, he's, he's right in handing out the penalty, but all that happens is, is we only learn to fear him. And that fails for God to demonstrate the main attribute of who he is. You see, those of you who listened to Stuart's uh, uh, YouTube clip on Thursday, he talked about in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. So that's his character. That's his main character. That's who he is. That's his essence. So for God to be loving then, if all he ever does is hand out uh, penalties for sin and separates us from himself, um, then that's only an attribute of justice and judgment. But it's not an attribute of pure love. There's no compassion on that side, which is, which is a major part of his loving attribute. So his solution then his solution to this is that he gave his only son. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. This is the, this is the way to still show justice towards sin and still create an opportunity for us to be in relationship with him, is to send a son. Now what's cool about this whole verse, we can't forget this, church, is that he actually says this after an amazing little section in verses 13 to 15. And we forget sometimes what precedes these verses because these verses have become so prolific in the Christian community. But I want you to look at verses 13 and 15 with me because it's in this context that giving of his son is, is understood. It says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This situation with the serpent in the wilderness and lifting up so that, so that the life would be given occurred with Israel in the wilderness. They're in their 40th year of traveling through the wilderness. They're about to enter Canaan, the land of promise. Israel today, and they're about to enter it, and all they've done for 40 years is grumble and bellyache against God. 
But this particular time, they really brought a strong accusation against him. In Numbers 21 and verse 5, they accuse God of bringing, the, bringing them from Egypt out into the wilderness only so he could kill them. So they basically turned around and said, God, we know why you brought us out and why you delivered us. is so that we could die in this wilderness. That's the way they viewed God. Secondly, they were griping about his provisionary care. And I quote and unquote, they said, we loathe this miserable food. We Basically, God, we loathe what you've provided for us. So not only they accuse him of, of uh, bringing him out to die, they accuse him of uh, basically being a bad provider. And God's actions and his attitude towards this, of course, was one of fury. And he sends snakes into the camp as a form of judgment. And many people die as a result of the snake bites. And the remainder of the survivors basically go to ICU. They're just waiting there, uh, waiting for the death to sort of come around as the poison sort of takes its toll. The Israelites are in a state of panic. They're in a state of panic, and they realize that their sin had brought God's judgment, so they cry out to Moses for help. They cry to him for help. And you can see the slide already. It says, uh, uh, So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a, f- uh, a make, sorry, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is important here as we see the parallels uh, between what was going on in Israel in the wilderness and what goes on with Jesus at Calvary. Here, um, Israel had sinned against God. Drastically. I mean, they accused him of wanting to kill him. They accused him of being a bad provider. And they, and they brought judgment upon themselves by their deeds, by their actions. And so so. God provides a means by which they can be lifted from judgment and, the, and be pardoned from the penalty. And look at the actions here. There's nothing Israel could offer God. There was nothing in the moment required of God in terms of what they could do. All, he, all they were to do was accept for themselves and trust in God's provision. They were to accept what God had provided in terms of the provision for forgiveness to be offered. If you were there and you were standing at the if you were there and you saw the pole with the, with the serpent erected on the on it the and you had the snake bite you would simply stand at the foot of this pole look up and wait for healing to occur. So what is this? This is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's a belief that God has made a provision so that the judgment of will be lifted off of you for and you were pardoned. And so Jesus, it's with this, within this context that he says, um, in verse 15 again, as Moses li- or 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And again, this idea of being lifted up is the same as giving, him, giving the Son, putting him on the cross, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, this belief, this belief that we are to have is that Jesus took it upon himself to bear the penalty of our sin, to die as a substitute in order that we would be pardoned for our sin and give us the opportunity to be given the gift of eternal life and a relationship with God. Now I say the word opportunity intentionally. 
because even though this is a universal offer, a universal offer in terms of, of the opportunity for forgiveness and relationship, it's not an it's not a universal automatic pardon. So just because it's offered doesn't mean you receive it just because this event happened. There's a role we have to play in receiving this gift. And it's called in, in, in verse 15 and in verse 16, belief. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now a belief of course involves the intellect. It's what you think. It's a, it's a mind process. So based on everything we've covered so far, I think we can summarize it in this way. And I, I've done this for the church in the past, but I break it down into the ABCs. What are we to believe? The A would stand for acknowledgement of sin. We acknowledge that all of us, when we view the law of God through love, we've all broken God's law of love. Every single one of us has gossiped, at the very least, We've broken the love code. So we acknowledge that we're sinners. Two, we believe, the B, we believe that Christ died as a substitute for the sins that we committed. The penalty was to be inflicted upon us. He took it upon himself to die as a substitute so that we didn't have to bear the penalty. C, we're to confess our sin. Now, John doesn't speak about confession here, but we know in Scripture in his other book, in 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, if, um, if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you of your sin. If you confess, he's faithful to forgive. It's the same author writing a book later on. So we confess it. We own up to what we did. And uh, the key areas of confession are what areas of life are we known by, by others? What are we known for? By others. Or, another way of looking at it is, if a movie was to be played, what areas of your life in the past would you not want to be aired on that movie for the public to see? So a movie of your life is played, what would you hope would be edited out so that nobody else would ever know? These are the areas that Jesus Christ needs to hear. Because these are the areas that put him on the cross. So belief in this context with acknowledging sin, believing Christ died as a substitute, confession, these are a surrender of the will. These are really a surrender of your will. Don and I have been meeting and uh, talking about um, various uh, things in scripture and about understanding the gospel. And um, we've been having great conversations and He's done a lot of work on the difference between Jesus being a mediator and Jesus being an advocate. And so I wanted to share some of the, some of the things that I've been learning with him about around Jesus being an advocate. You see, in the law system, in the courts of law today, an advocate's basically a lawyer. As a lawyer. So if you have a case... I didn't get that. Could you try oh, again? Sorry. sorry, my phone's talking to me here. Um, if I was in a situation where I was guilty before a judge of a crime, I would get an advocate who would be a lawyer to represent me. This lawyer would plead my case before the judge. But what's interesting in that is that the, the, the advocate or the lawyer requires a retainer. He won't represent me unless I pay him something. 
unless I give him something to represent me. Then he'll take my case before the judge. Well, Jesus in 1 John chapter 2 is described as the advocate. It says here, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So Jesus Christ is willing to go and plead our case before the Father and basically plead for a pardon from our sin. What's interesting is, though, he needs a retainer to do that. <laughs> How do we hire the Lord? How do we hire him? We believe in him. We surrender our will. We, we, we basically take our heart and we throw it to him and say, we acknowledge we're sinners. We believe you died for us. We're confessing our sin. And it's a full surrender of the will to Jesus Christ. But there's one more key aspect. One more really, really important aspect to belief and this surrendering of the will. And this actually has to do with our obedience to the Lord as a love expression for his love for us. And this is an incredible verse in verse 35 and 36 of John 3. He says this in John 3:35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now that's a repeat of 3.16. But then he says this, He who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now follow the logic of this. Follow the logic. If I were to say to you, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not will not see life, you'd, you'd want to substitute the word belief in again. Because if you, right, if you have eternal life through belief, you would expect no eternal life through lack of belief. He doesn't do that. He substitutes the word obey instead of believe. For him, for Jesus in this context, belief and obedience are synonymous terms. They're one and the same. So he moves from the, the belief is more than just the mind. It's more than the intellect. It's about the way you live in response to the offer of Christ at Calvary. These are incredible verses when you look at it this way. Because now in the ABCs, we can add the, the, the letter D. D would stand for dedication of our life back to the Lord. And this is why Paul in his own writings would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I, it's no longer I who lives, but he who lives in me. Well, Paul wasn't physically crucified with Christ. He still had a life to live. But what he meant was he was living like a dead man walking. <laughs> but he wasn't dead in terms of like, like a zombie or a corpse. He was actually full of life because he was committed fully to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an incredible way to think of the gospel message. That belief, the belief will be reflected in the way we live and not just in the way we think. And so John finishes though with a plea. Well, actually, well, we can see a plea, I should say, in here. The time to do this is limited, church. The time to do this is limited. In verse 17, it says this, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. Now, in this context, it sounds like Jesus is not going to judge. He's not a judge, but that's not true. This has to do, this verse has to do with the timing of judgment. The timing of judgment. The first time he comes into the world, he comes in to save the world. The judgment comes at his second coming, when he come, 
when he comes back for a second time to rule. And we can see this later on in John, two chapters later. The same book, two chapters later. He says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he's a son of man. But again, church, the first time he comes into the world, he comes as, as Savior to, to die on the cross to free us from sin. Second time he comes back, he comes to judge the world. And why do I say the time is limited? It's in this lifetime we have to make that decision. It's in this lifetime we have to make that decision for Jesus Christ. It says here in uh, Hebrews 9.27, each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. After that comes the judgment. There's no such thing as purgatory in the Bible. There's no such thing as second chances. Our opportunity to love the Lord is here and now. But again, look at the incredible offer that the Son offers, or that God offers. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. I was thinking of this this morning, church, you know, let's say one of you sinned against me. One of you sinned against me. The way I'd want that to be taken care of is that you would, you would take that penalty, like the person who sinned against me, that you'd be punished for it. That's the way I feel justice would be served. How does God deal with it? He takes his only son and has him die as a substitute. In other words, those of you who have children, if you've been wronged, the way you deal with that sin is you have your own child executed for the sin someone else committed against you. That doesn't even register in your mindset. But that's exactly what the Lord did with his own. And that shows how much he loves us and how much he actually desires this relationship. But he never forces himself upon us. He gives us the freedom to choose whether we want to love him back and accept his offer or not. He's done a tremendous amount to create an opportunity for us to be in relationship with him. But we have to exercise our faith and choose to receive that gift. I want to finish with one comment. It's very interesting. This whole conversation occurs within the context of speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus in chapter 3 verse 1 is defined as a... Uh, a Pharisee, so he was one of the religious teachers in Jesus' day, one of the key religious teachers. He was the, the pastor of the church, so to speak. He was defined also as a ruler of the Jews in verse, uh, in verse 1. Um, he, that means he was part of the Supreme Court of Israel. He was in something called the Sanhedrin, 71 members. So he was of a r religious elite and handed, handed out to, dealt with civil matters um, in terms of judgment within the nation. Finally, Jesus even recognizes him in verse 10 as being the teacher of Israel. He's not a teacher in Israel. He's the teacher in Israel. So we have this man, this Nicodemus, this guy who's president of Trinity Western University Seminary and uh, serves in the Supreme Court of Canada. That's kind of the, the ranking this guy has. In the public eye, 
And then and the religious community, he's a man of virtue. He's upstanding as a citizen. He's morally on high ground compared to many in the nation. And he comes to Jesus and wants to talk about spiritual things. And Jesus basically says to him in a loving way, Nicodemus, even with all that tremendous morality and and in your tremendous position in society and all your background, you're not right with God. You're not right with God. He says to him, you, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And born again is defined in our verses today. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we learn here that one's initial moral standing or, or you know, uh, track record of a spiritual report card doesn't cut it for entering the kingdom because when we look at through the law of love, the law of love, even the most upstanding citizen has not been able to not gossip about their neighbor. Even the most upstanding citizen has failed to not gossip about their neighbor. And we need God to take care of those unloving actions for us. And so he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But we have to believe, church, and that's what Easter is all about. And so we celebrate the resurrection because, again, it's in that he defeated death and the penalty of sin is not attached to our back.